And I still wrestle with certain theological formulations and metaphysical questions. But when someone points to this moral contradiction at the center of their decision to apostatize, it's really difficult to take that on. Hello. Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori, and I'm back. Back from the dead. I'm not sure I know how to podcast anymore, though, dude, so you might have to handicap me here. Well, I've been fucking carrying the weight this whole time, so I can just add a little bit more to the load already. I know, man. I really enjoyed actually listening to the Austin Hayden Smith podcast. <laughs> I don't know, man. Well, it's been it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. You let me get wild. We did uh, non philosophy and Stalinism while you were gone. So I just have one question: Have you converted to non Stalinism? Yeah. So you know for sure that I am like the furthest thing from a tanky on the left that there is, right? But I really enjoyed uh, you guys talking about that and. Um, uh, it was certainly an enlightening discussion, and you know I still have some some qualms about the whole the whole position there on, regarding Stalinism. But uh, I certainly appreciated getting a more thorough world perspective. Mm. Um, yeah, that was that was really wonderful. I'm bummed that I missed it, but I'm also glad that I got to listen more as a pure audience member. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll get Jay on again, and we'll uh, we'll be able to keep picking his brain. I'd love to actually learn a bit more about India in particular. Yeah, definitely. Um, since he has uh, an expertise in that area, both experientially firsthand and uh, also through research. But and uh, and are you a Laruellian now? As much as we even discussed in that podcast that Laruell himself would hate that term. But have you converted to non-philosophy? Is this your new way of life? No, I have not. I mean, I think uh, non-philosophy still for me it's it's something completely alien. So I really enjoyed the discussion, but. Um, I, I don't know that I even had a grasp on what non-philosophy is yet. So I think I'd have to actually dive into the primary sources with Lateral Well before I can have a, a real opinion about about that stuff. Yeah, I, you know what, too? I think I think getting to Lateral Well through Deleuze is really handy because I think Lateral Well is in many ways, and I know it's not just the one essay that he writes that actually Taylor and I talked about in that episode. But um, I think he he's kind of distancing himself and kind of pressing the kind of Deleuzian metaphysical project um, beyond what it was even capable of doing, right? Like if Deleuze is taking philosophy and stretching it to its limits, Laruelle is saying, well, but you're still stuck within a certain framework. And so he kind of, maybe similarly to how Hegel goes through Kant. Maybe we could kind of say that Laruelle goes through Deleuze in a certain way, or at least I have found benefit accessing Laruelle through Deleuze. And since you haven't been as like positively inclined towards Deleuze, um, maybe it just you haven't been as primed for like finding your foray into Laruelle. Which I mean, I'm still a fucking baby, but I feel like that's been like a nice way to grease the gears, so to speak. Yeah, so nothing more alienating than being told you got to read more Deleuze before you can read something else. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> oh, God. 
But why don't we get back more into this uh this little duet that we do here, yeah? That that sounds good to me, man. You can you're my compass and my anchor, Troy. Steer the ship for us this week, please. Does that mean you're like the generator? I am the energy. Yeah, I'm the combustion chamber. Yeah, I think that metaphor works out pretty well. Okay, that sounds good. So we got to talk about uh, movie first, yeah? Our yes, sponsor. we do. Indeed. Um, yeah, so for people who know, and then of course for people who don't know, uh, Mubi is an online streaming service that specializes in indie darlings, regional, foreign cinema, uh, films that have flown under the radar uh, by world-renowned directors and cinematographers, actors, and it's a perfectly curated 30-film library that has what we have coined on this podcast a slaughterhouse rotation, which is basically <laughs> that there are 30 films, and a film gets a 30-day rotation, and at the end of that 30 days, it gets chopped off like a cow in the slaughterhouse. And then a new film gets added to the rotation, awaiting doomsday when it too will be chopped off, which means that there's an urgency. You have to get to your library so that you can access the film before it gets slaughtered. But... Violent imagery aside, it's a fantastic streaming service. Um, honestly, it's it's um, some of the top cinema that you you can access that is either fresh off the festival circuit, like right now in my library, they're doing stuff from Locarno Film Fest, which is an amazing sort of avant-garde experimental indie um, festival in Switzerland, to like Sundance specials, to sometimes they do like these directors, Fortnite or director specials. So it's absolutely fantastic. And if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn, that's movie, M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn, you actually get an extended trial, a 30-day free trial to use their service. And Troy is going to talk about something that's in his library right now that's piqued his interest. Yeah, so what piqued my interest in my library right now on movie is um, John Huston's last film. So if you know John Huston, you probably know him from many of the great classic films from the 40s and 50s, like The Maltese Falcon, Treasure of Sierra Madre, Key mm. Largo, Red Badge of Courage, African Queen, so on and so forth. Um, and pretty much everyone who's had any sort of like film education or film history education knows about John Huston as being one of the great American filmmakers. And um, but one movie that he's a film he's made that I haven't seen is his final film that he made in 1987, um, the year that he died, I believe, is called The Dead, and it's an adaptation of a James Joyce uh, short story. And I guess it's hmm. basically Houston's love letter to to Ireland and Irish culture. Um, hmm. And uh, I'd never even heard of this film before it came up on my movie, but I'm excited to give it a watch, um, given the circumstances around it. Houston's obvious, you know, effect on um, all of American film and uh, the fact that I guess I was reading here that he was in a wheelchair and on an oxygen tank while making the film. So he was, wow. he was literally on his last legs there. So I'm excited about giving that a watch. Hmm. What's in your uh, rotation right now? Um, so in my rotation, we got a few things. Uh, I did mention that there's a, a direct from Locarno film called Fausto that looks quite interesting. But the one that I got really excited about is The Illusionist, the mm. French animated film from 2010. Troy, you know this film, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful film. It is. It's. Um, it was funny. As I, as I was describing it earlier, I said, oh, it's just this charming animated film. And then I looked at the synopsis, and the way that they describe it is a charming animated feature, because <laughs> it is. It is just this really kind of... Um, lovely father-daughter drama, and I would say that everybody should check it out. You know what's funny, man? I went through a phase when I thought 
and I know maybe this is like just like an adult thing or like a trying to be a rebellious I'm TC kind of thing, too cool for school. And I thought that animated films were for children. And I and I don't just mean like the animated films from like Adult Swim or something like that either that are clearly geared towards humans. But I just are humans because <laughs> children are humans, uh, adult humans. Um, but uh, but I'm starting to really love animation now, and it's really been since I I delved into the Studio Ghibli library, and it's kind of like reinvigorated a real love and fascination and enjoyment towards animation. So um, yeah, yeah, I. It's kind of random, but kind of related as well. So I would say absolutely check out The Illusionist. And uh, like I said, in order to get access to the service, you can go to mubi.com slash owls at dawn. It's mubi.com slash owls at dawn and get your 30-day free extended trial. And we also want to mention that if you want to support what we're doing here on Owls at Dawn, you can do so at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. We have several tiers of supports you can contribute towards. Um, including the Democracy Motherfuckers tier, where you get access to um, polls and suggestions to uh, our next patron-sponsored episode, which is coming up very soon. We should have the pull-up of the few uh, topics to choose from by the time this episode is airing. Right, Austin? Yep. Yep. It's live. It is live. And we should also have um, some bonus or a bonus episode going about uh, going up about the same time as this episode, so you get access to that through Patreon as well. As well as yeah. our monthly newsletter. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to be talking about Tarantino's new flick, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. So again, that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Support us there. And uh, should we get in the podcast here, Austin? Let's do it, brother. So uh, you know what we got to do before we do anything else? What do we got to do? That's the shitty minute, dude. Yeah. This is the part of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So Austin, what's got you down? This is really hard, man, because it's been three weeks. So I've had a couple of things. Oh, and man, I have you've been like just chomping up the bit, huh? I've been stewing, brother. I've been stewing. So I've got two. So I don't really know where to go here because one is really fresh and it wouldn't have actually been my shitty minute had this not occurred to me last night, as a matter of fact. And then the other one's just been bugging me for a long time. So I think I'm going to go with the one that's been stewing for a long time. Um... So yeah, I can, like rancid, rotten, old shit is the worst. Yeah, I'll get rid of that one, and then I'll move on to this other one later, because this other one isn't going to go away either. So I'll write it down, and I'll make a mental note, and in two <laughs> weeks, I'll bitch about that one. Um, Nothing like saving so, shit. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold my <laughs> shit in. Yeah, yeah, i got to get rid of the, the oldest waste first, and then I'm going to clench my sphincter for the more recent <laughs> stuff. Anyway, um, so... You know, it's weird, man. This is the first time in my life this has ever happened, but I'm starting to, you know, I'm starting to really take stock of my age, right? Like I'm in my mid thirties now and I'm starting to, to really take stock of where I am in my life and how I fit in the rest of society and the world and how people my age also fit. And then how different that is from where I was even just five years ago, um, you know, and then in my late 20s and then into my like early 20s even and kind of just thinking about how I viewed the world and my place in the world then and something has occurred to me that is really fucking weird, bro. And I don't even know how to describe it other than I feel, I have felt, especially over the last year or so, but really over the last couple months, I have felt that the world is not for me. And what I mean by that 
is that when I look at the way that culture, the culture industry is packaged, I feel like it's not packaged to me anymore. Whereas 10 years ago, I felt like I got it. I felt like it was packaged to me. The commercials, they were aesthetically um, in line with my aesthetic interests, or maybe I was aesthetically conditioned in line with those aesthetic motifs that were being packaged to me. Um, the content that's constantly coming out, uh, it doesn't seem that it's geared to me. The music that's being packaged isn't geared to me. And I've noticed that it is geared towards a younger generation, right? And I know that this is that prime demographic thing, the 18 to 35 thing, and I am now on the cusp of that, right? Or moving out of it now. Um, but it is interesting that this is, I've, I've felt this and it's fucking weird, bro. And one part of me finds it annoying not because I don't feel like I have a place or something like that. Because part of me has actually found like some weird sympathy with somebody like my dad or or even like older generations who have experienced this. And they're like, oh man, like like they, they, they feel like life is passing them by. And I'm kind of like, oh, because in a sense, the branding industry is passing you by. This isn't your fucking world anymore. And it's a weird fucking feeling. So I kind of feel like I get it why like old stodgy people get all grumpy about those damn young kids anymore and how it also intensifies maybe even politically and socially to like the world is somehow being corrupted it's because the world isn't theirs anymore it's being taken away from you whereas previously everything in your world you were embedded in it you were embedded into the socioeconomic and the cultural machine but now you're not it's kind of being ripped from you a little bit and i've started to feel this and it's fucking weird man i don't think i like it and I can see it getting worse and worse and worse. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of unsettled me a little bit. Does this make any sense? Yeah, dude. I mean, I think this is a good philosophical development because you've gone from like grasping the for itself to now you're grasping the in itself. That's, that's a positive <laughs> development. Uh, no, seriously though, you know, I think the solution, dude, is just if you always thought that the brand-oriented monoculture was bullshit, then you wouldn't mourn the like decay. But uh, that's kind of how I feel. Like maybe I just haven't had this experience yet, because uh, I'm like a mm. year, year and a half younger than you. But um, mm. I just, I don't know. I always thought that the underground was way cooler than, than uh, you know, the you know, stuff that the monoculture presents. So was that was it part of it? Just like this, like fantastical element of I'm part of um, the world culture. I'm part of the zeitgeist as it progresses, yeah. and then it's just. Now it's ignoring you. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot in relation to like potency and how in my youth it felt like the world was mine. Now part of this is because I grew up in a kind of like middle class suburban area where I was very privileged and I was given a lot of resources. And I think I was led to believe that like literally I could I could do anything and I believed it that I literally could do anything. And I think still sometimes I'm a bit naive and think that I can do fucking anything. <laughs> um, but I think it was because there was a sense of potency that I was equipped with. And I'm starting to feel that potency kind of slip a little bit. And and part of it is because I'm starting to realize, maybe part of it is because my intellectual shifts and um, maybe my personal habits are kind of changing a little bit as well. Maybe I was uh, I was swimming kind of and I was... I was more immersed and 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 wetter, let's say, in that monocultural system, whereas now I'm um, I, I'm not as much for whatever reason. Maybe because I always had one foot in and one foot out. Even over the last you know ten, twelve years of kind of academic thought and critical thinking, I still was very 
chameleon-like. I was still able to disguise myself in any cultural setting and talk about anything and be very comfortable and with pretty much anybody anywhere at any time, right? But I'm starting to feel that slip a little bit now. And part of it might be because uh, being more in touch with authenticity and who knows what it is. But it's just fucking weird, man. And um, and yeah, but, but I definitely do see this. I, I feel like the world is not constructed for me. It's totally constructed for like younger millennials and Gen Zers, you know? Like even the way that advertisements are structured on YouTube and the way that they pop up or the way that television shows are formulaically reproduced, um, the the content that is made. But even even the political debates online, they seem to kind of embody this type of like reality television drama. And I'm not just complaining here about like online content, blah, blah, blah. But there's also something that's... Um, uh, that seems to be this like nexus between art and reality that is um it doesn't quite fit with where I am in my life for the first time in my in my life I felt I feel a little detached from it if that makes sense and it's fucking weird I don't know I don't I, part of me doesn't like it part of it, it it's unsettling and then another part of me also thinks oh I get it now. You fucking brand makers, you are insidious motherfuckers because you you had me for all these years. You fucking had me. And now I get it because you don't want me anymore and you've, you're discarding me because I'm moving on to that other stage. And yeah, other institutions are going to have me, uh, so to speak, but, but they don't want me anymore. And so I can, I, I, I'm not like an old worn out rubber or like leather shoe, but I can see myself becoming that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, for one, celebrate the transition into misanthropic Austin. I think that's been lacking for most of your life with your, you know, always wanting to do the best in everything and always wanting to be a part of every single group and every single phenomenon and enjoy whatever it has to offer the world. So, yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm enjoying this. You're never going to really change, right? But having that little bit more of a misanthropic side will be kind of fun. It's a little mm. bit of darkness in the light. Hmm. We'll see what happens. <laughs> They'll, we'll see if they can capture me in another way. All right, so should we move on to our main segment here? Yeah, let's do it, dude. So we were thinking about what to do for this episode, and one issue that's been kind of in the news a little bit, at least in the circles that we swim in, um, probably less so in mainstream news circles, is a situation revolving around the now former uh, Christian devotional writer, uh, Joshua Harris. Um, now, mm. I don't think we need to delve too deep into like his personal history or even his his story so much, because I don't think we want to talk about that as much as we want to talk about some of the maybe theoretical issues that are in the backdrop of what's happening in this phenomenon. But just really quickly, uh, Josh Harris was a, or uh, yeah, was a, uh, kind of evangelical, American evangelical uh, devotional writer. And he was most famous for uh, writing a book called I Kissed uh, Dating Goodbye. Um, did you have much familiarity with this book when you were, it came out when we were in high school, right? Yeah, it was a little bit uh, younger than me, I think. Well, because remember, I wasn't a Christian at the time when this book came out. So for me, when I converted and by the time I got involved in the Christian community, I had already been sexually active. And so I had to do like the born again virgin thing, right? So for me, and it, I just thought that the idea of I kiss dating goodbye in courtship as being kind of outdated and traditional. I never bought into it, even though when I did go through my conversion and when we were at our Christian university, 
when I was dating the president of the university's daughter, or I mean, not daughter, <laughs> niece, not daughter, niece. Um, I was dating her and um, her dad was a very conservative evangelical type. And he wanted us to like take a step back at one point and start the courtship thing and all this other stuff. So that was my exposure to it. It was like this, this anachronistic forcing that was foisted upon me, but I personally never fully bought it. But I did read another one of his books. What about you? Did did I I kiss dating goodbye have an impact on you or? Were yeah, you so I had with it? I had a similar experience where I I never heard of it in high school, and then in college, once people started doing the recreational dating thing, it became a topic of conversation, and people would bring up the yeah. book and say you should really read it and think about this. Um, you know, it kind of revolves around. We've already kind of mentioned it. The uh, alternatives of uh, courtship versus kind of recreational dating. And there was this argument that um, the recreational dating um, scene um, basically just follows the dictates of like secular culture. And mm. as evangelicals, the argument was we should be thinking about what is the more biblical model of dating. And uh, of course the biblical model of dating is like uh, trade two donkeys for a wife or whatever. But um <laughs> That, that never gets brought up. It's it's some other like <laughs> random isogetical conglomeration of ideas that gets produced as what's called courtship. And uh, right. I do I know I, I didn't think about this until right now, but yeah, I remember us talking about this um, when you were uh, dating the person who uh, we will not name on the podcast, obviously. And uh, <laughs> this, this you're just absolute bewilderment of the idea that you might have to do this courtship thing <laughs> instead of just regular dating. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, dude. I mean, it was, um, there was a moment and I think there was a documentary that was made about the courtship thing. And I remember when, when I got exposed to it and when it was, when it was suggested that this is the approach that I should take, I remember I was, I was very interested in, in how it was formulated because it was basically like, how am I supposed to take a step back? Now, I've already been recreationally dating this woman so how are we supposed to take a step back now and the basic idea is is that the father wanted me to approach him and get to know him and get to know the family first and then when he approves then he would allow us to like see each other and then you don't just date somebody but rather you just kind of like enter into a serious um a serious relationship with the intent of marriage and so there was no casual dating whatsoever, but we had already been doing that for months and months and months. So it's like, how am I supposed to take a step back now? And the bottom line is that ultimately he just didn't like me because he thought I was going to corrupt his daughter. And he wanted Which to just true. make sure that... Yeah, it was <laughs> probably true. Probably. He was absolutely right in his judgment about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So he just wanted to like suss me out and then basically get both of us to agree that he could have the final say to kick me out of his daughter's life so which eventually in the end it did kind of work out that way <laughs> yeah and it's, it's very clearly a way for uh, fathers in a family to domineer over their daughters it's like entirely about that um and it's not even really all that like hidden it's pretty on no. the surface but um so josh harris is famous for writing this book that was sort of hip and you know uh, like early millennial oriented and advocating for this courtship is kind of like a, like a cool pomo trad uh, way of being a Christian or whatever. Right. It, it was um, popular mostly in like conservative evangelical circles, but it certainly wasn't yeah. like written from a stodgy fundamentalist point of view. Uh, no, no. Or at least aesthetic, uh, maybe point of view. But um, anyway, uh, Josh Harris was famous for that. He was a pastor for a long time. And, 
what happened in the last few weeks is that he came out and basically announced his apostasy from mm. Christianity. He he didn't do um, the sort of normal like I'm now a liberal Christian and I believe that God loves everybody, but I'm going to still be a pastor or I'm still going to do my you know church work or missionary work or whatever. Um, but I'm going to like slowly transform into like a progressive Christian, which is you see that happen quite a bit. Um, his was, you know, he didn't denounce uh, God or, or anything, but he basically just came out and said, I can't be a Christian anymore. Um, mm. And pointed towards his, his own writing on the LGBT community as being a huge factor in his uh, change of mind and his apostasy. Um, and then it was recently, I think, um, he went and marched in a gay pride parade recently, and that kind of brought the news cycle back uh, towards him a little bit um, as it became very clear that this was sort of the, the wedge issue in, in, in his turn here. Hmm. And and I think, I think also just so that we give all the information, he also announced that he and his wife were getting divorced. Um, right. I think right before he announced online that he was no longer a Christian. And can I just, it's not that long, can I just read his statement that he made? Yeah, totally. It's only like four paragraphs. So here, I'll read it. It's, it's, it'll take a couple minutes, but this is him. My heart is full of gratitude. I wish you could see all the messages people sent me after the announcement of my divorce. They are expressions of love, though they are saddened or even strongly disapproved of the decision. I am learning that no group has the market cornered on grace. This week, I've received grace from Christians, atheists, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, straight people, LGBTQ people, and everyone in between. Of course, there have also been strong words of rebuke from religious people. While not always pleasant, I know that they are seeking to love me. There have also been spiteful, hateful comments that angered and hurt me. The information that was left out in our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I am not there now. Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I have lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. But I specifically want to add to this list now, to the, G to the LGBTQ plus community, I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. To my Christian friends, I am grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return calls. I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe with my sister Julian that all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. That's a damn well-written statement. <laughs> yeah, it is, man. Um, what, were, what were your initial thoughts when you heard about this? I mean, did you have any like stake or investment in him as a Christian leader when you were younger? Not really. I mean, he was mostly just a, a very popular figure that everybody knew about and talked about regarding the, the dating thing. Um, but I didn't have any personal mm -hmm. stake in it. I was certainly never into the whole like courtship as the main biblical model 
or relationship building or whatever. Mm. I think really what struck me was I've seen so many figures who were of the conservative evangelical bent when we were in college that were formative for us. Um, sort of some of them sort of drift away into more like the emergent church style or a little bit more into progressive um, culture generally and just with the Christian veneer. That's happened mm. for a lot of figures and a lot of other figures have gone full on, um, full on right wing extremist and been basically taken up under the alt right or, you know, Trump phenomenon. So uh, it seems like everyone's kind of gone one of two ways with the political mm. divide in the country. And I thought it was really interesting that he didn't really um, do that. He didn't really that phrase of by whatever it means or what, whatever definition used for Christian, I am not one. I thought it was very interesting. And it made me that was think, the one, yeah, that was the one that was most impactful to me too. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of what made me want to discuss this wasn't anything about Josh Harris or his previous views on dating or anything like that, but more about this idea of what makes someone decide whether they're still of a particular ideological marker or not when they undergo change. Because I know that you and me have both grappled with this question a lot. Um, there was certainly a time after college when we both kind of went under what you might call like deconversion or whatever. And this is a lie of choice. You, It's really important to you whether or not you're going to remain a liberal Christian or you're going to be a progressive Christian or emergent or whatever other mark you want to uh, go under or like even go to something really alien and go like full on Eastern Orthodox or, you know, trad Catholic, which I know a lot of people of our ilk ex-evangelicals did. Um, or whether you're just going to ditch the marker entirely. And there's a lot of interesting questions, I think, about why we think that way in the first place, whether it's healthy or helpful to think that way, and just generally how to think about ideological change um, at all. So yeah. I thought that was a more interesting question. So I kind of wanted to approach this as, like, what is apostasy? What does it mean mm-hmm. to be an apostate? Um, does that sound something interesting to talk about? Yeah. better because that's what we're talking about <laughs> yeah okay all right man it, it's your ship i'm just the engine the combustion engine you're steering <laughs> um so check this so i i met up with remember kendall who was on our podcast and she did the uh she talked about aristotle for sure so I went and had coffee and tea with her the other day, and we talked for a bit. And uh, by the way, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back through the catalog and check that out. She dropped some knowledge about Aristotle. But we were chatting about this, and she's from uh, like the Tennessee and then kind of has some Texas roots. She went to school in Texas and uh, has some evangelical roots. And so we were kind of chatting about this. And and I mentioned to her, I said, that I, I still don't know if I like disbelieve, you know, like I'm still, I still have some attachments to belief and to the church and, and not just in a, not simply in a romantic or the sense of longing for community, which is something when she and I were together that I, that was probably the most important thing for me that I feel like I've lost since I've been disconnected with the confessional church is that deep, deep sense of family mm-hmm. that I had with the church. But even more than that, even the theological doctrines, they still ring true sometimes in my mind, you know? And I still wrestle with certain theological formulations and 
metaphysical questions and historical questions. And, um, and I still work through those things to this day. I said, but the one thing that is interesting is that an ideological position that I am absolutely convinced on, that I have moved away from, is in the political realm, or let's say in the sense of like national identity, which is that I am firmly committed to a critical position on um, the United States of America as a sort of neo-colonial imperial force in the world. And that, you would think, would have maybe a similar kind of catastrophic pulling the rug out from underneath me kind of death of God experience as maybe some people have with the church. But maybe that, so, so and but it hasn't. Like, I'm actually very confident in that. Whereas the distancing myself from the church, the real death of God proclamation is something that I'm not as comfortable with. And I found that to be like a really interesting, as we were working through this, a really interesting kind of moment of, of revelation for me that I haven't yet detached from the church, but I have completely detached from any sort of um, conscious fidelity or piety to uh, the American ethos, which I thought was an interesting thing. So I'm, I'm torn with one ideological position and on one I'm really comfortable with uh, having a shift in. Do you think that that's mostly because the shift away from like American imperialist ideology um, presents an alternative? So you have like a more like your interest in political theology or um, liberation theology, excuse me, um, as being like a a liberatory alternative that you can grasp onto that has a sort of community to it, it has a history. You know, it's it's got books that have been written for hundreds of years, and so you can kind of grasp that alternative family, whereas leaving the church basically means leaving the family and there isn't an obvious family there to grasp you or to, you know, embrace you as you leave. And so you're kind of left out in the cold a bit. Yeah. I think that's a hundred percent. it. That's something that, that Kendall and I did talk about. And, um, I think you're absolutely right. I remember another actually former guest that we had Tom Airy, who was way back in the early days. We did an episode with him. Um, he is a, uh, an activist and got a, I don't even know what you would call him. Could we call him a, a secular missionary? Because <laughs> uh, he still is. He still identifies as a Christian, um, but he is very much in line with the sort of social gospel liberation theology esque um, approach to spirituality and and um, and to the Christian faith. And I remember when I was in L.A. last, I was contacting him about communities in the local area that were similarly inclined to his approach to things, you know, social justice churches or liberation theology churches. And he was like, brother, let me tell you, it is a desert. There are not many. And he gave me a list of some people. Uh, oh God, I can't remember what his name is. I can't remember the first, his first name, but Crib was his last name. I think it's like Arthur Cribb. Um, he was a wonderful pastor. He's a social justice pastor in, uh, in LA. And, um, kind of a, a black liberation theology guy. Um, and then the church that I ended up being a part of for a little bit was in Pasadena, and it was a social justice uh, Episcopalian church. And, you know, it was, it was, um, it was, it was nice, but it wasn't the same. Like when I was at and I, and I don't mind saying the name of the church because I don't even know if they're around anymore, but I was at a church called Copper Hill. And Troy, you'll remember Copper Hill. Oh, yeah. Um, 
for people listening, it was it was the church that when you were at our university in our area, that if you went there, you were potentially not even saved. <laughs> it was like again, which was true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Because we used to like play poker and smoke cigars and drink beer when we would fellowship, right? Um, but at the same time, the brotherhood that I had with some of those men and then the relationships that I had with some of those women, it, it, it was deeper than anything else that I had experienced in a community setting before, you know? Um, I mean, I'm still like Matt Telly. We've had him on our podcast again, um, and he's going to come on and talk about reparations at some point in the next month with us. Um, he's a guy that was, I lived with him, but he also was a part of that church, and he could speak to this, that there was a profound sense of community. And losing that and not being able to find an alternative or a substitute for that has really been, um, I think, a really difficult, like, locus of that, uh, of that, I guess, maybe frustration or anxiety in dealing with the ideological shift of my, my criticisms of the confessional church. Yeah, I can echo that by just, um, saying that, you know, this is not even just a sort of immediate uh, hurt or harm that occurs when you actually undergo the transition or leave the church. This is a forever uh, harm because, you know, we know that sociologically speaking, like the majority of your close friendships are sort of uh, forged in college, right? In your early 20s. Um, And it's really hard to make really close friends after that. And if you consciously leave the mm. dominant ideological group in your college, especially one for us that was extremely rigid, that you basically you have to be part of the um, ideological group to remain in the group. There is no toleration of dissent. Then you're basically giving up on close friendships, almost for your life, in large part. And now for me, the close friendships I have that remain are only with people that were also went under the same transition away from the church. So, mm. uh, and you know, obviously you and me are the kind of prime examples of that. Um, so it's, I'm not trying to do like a pity party here. That's not the point. The point is just to say, this is an extremely difficult transition. And I know for me, it was incredibly pained. It wasn't just thinking about abstract theological ideas and whether or not I believed in them and whether or not they were accurate or logically uh, coherent or whatever. Um, there was a place for that, but it really came down to whether or not I could except being part of this group. Um, and I know it kind of ties back into to Harris here. I think it's really interesting that he couches, and I, I don't know anything about Harris personally or anything about his story beyond his statement on Facebook that you read, but it's really interesting to me that he brings up his views on, um, on marriage equality and LGBTQ people as seems like the main reason for his apostasy or his dissent, right? Um, I, what I think is really interesting about that is that he's not really pointing to necessarily like a logical reason for his leaving the church or an experiential reason. It's really, to me, it seems like he's pointing to a moral contradiction in his previous thought hmm. that he has recognized and that he regrets and that he's seeking to, um, to reform or to correct. And what's super interesting to me about that is I I thought about it in the exact same way. It wasn't specifically about marriage equality, but it was about the moral contradiction. It was, I value these specific things 
And the group that I'm in contradicts that. And I have to eventually make some sort of choice about whether these principal values that I have matter in a way that subordinates whatever my theology is. And mm. I eventually had to make that choice. And that was sort of the moment of deconversion or whatever. And that wasn't like a thing that happened one day. It was something that happened over months and months and then eventually years. But I think a very similar event happened in my own thinking. And so I, I was very sympathetic towards Harris's statement for that reason. And I also think um, what's really interesting is the reaction from a lot of um, people in the Christian, in Christian circles. I read a few articles from like Christianity Today and Relevant Magazine and others who were kind of in the um, Christian like blogosphere online editorials uh, community. And some of them were, were nice and conciliatory and others were a little bit more aggressive uh, towards Harris and denouncing him. And I think that it's really difficult for people, it seems like, to grasp that someone could leave the church because they believe in this or they have this moral contradiction in mind mm. where they say that Christianity does not live up to its own values. And in fact, maybe it cannot live up to its own values because there is a deep inherent moral contradiction inside of it. Um, mm. And people seem to react violently or aggressively mm. when yeah. that's pointed out. It's really easy when someone like is caught sleeping with a mistress and so they leave the church. That's easy, right? But when someone is, I mean, I know, I know he left his, his wife, but I, I don't want to get into that because who knows what the reasons are behind that ultimately. Um, but when someone points to this moral contradiction at the center of their decision to apostatize, it's really difficult for someone to take that on, right? And, and no one really seems to address that. It seems to be mostly just this kind of general talk about falling away and praying for his salvation and praying for him to eventually be moved by the spirit to come back and stuff like that, rather than really grappling with the point that he seems to be trying to make about um, this tension inside of uh, evangelical thought. Do you have any yeah. reactions to that at all? Well, because what he's ultimately doing is, and I'm really glad you brought this up, because you're absolutely right. When a when a pastor is caught having an extramarital affair, that's just, oh man, he backslid. It's all about him. But the foundation of Revelation, the Bible, the church's dogma is unshaken. It's that he has stepped outside of that center. But what Harris is doing is he's blowing up the center. And he's saying, no, the center is fundamentally wrong. And and I, and I am right, <laughs> or maybe not I am right, but I am principled in a different orientation. And that is a completely different move. And I think that, I think that for the center, the confessional church, to grapple with that is almost an impossibility without them having to look at themselves. And that's one, just, you know, psychoanalytically very difficult to do ever in life in general, but especially when you have such a rigidly and delicately constructed edifice, which I would say the church is, then the potential for a systems crisis is imminent, right? If you allow for the sort of um, the, the intricacy to turn into a type of fragility, then what you have is not a steel center or a, let's say a steel ball, but what you have is like a porcelain 
piggy bank kind of thing. And with just one little tap of a hammer, the whole thing can break apart. So the response is to hunker down and to fortify yourselves and push things away. And so you discredit um, and then you shift blame, but you can't engage in in an honest, genuine, self-critical activity because then you will be exposing yourself to contradiction, to um, some form of potential destruction, to the chaos, to the very thing that theology is meant to mitigate, right? Theology mitigates the disasters that come from the natural world. It mitigates the disasters that come from disease. It mitigates the uncertainty of death. It mitigates those things. Theodicy and theology are obverse images of one another. And you have to continue to build and maintain the fortifications or you expose yourself to that. And so that's what they have to do in response to Harris. The church has to band together if it's going to maintain its position as the center, you know? Yeah, and it's very telling, right, that it's so defensive. Um, It's not just to sort of psychoanalyze individuals who we don't know. That's not the point. The point no. is just to look at the immediate reaction as being so defensive. And that's just, it's very telling about what the purposes of theology is about, right? It's about defending oneself from critical thoughts, whether from the outside or even from the inside. And I know that for us, that was always a telling um, marker of anxiety and of weakness, right? Mm, that's um, right rather than being willing and able and uh, sort of encouraging dissent and doubt, it's stifling those things as dangerous. And, you know, we were joking earlier about how we do this often. We talk about how all the different little offshoots from conservative evangelicalism we got interested in were sort Mm. of, uh, you know, castigated as sort of routes towards destruction and towards apostasy. And that they were all correct. They were correct to say that because those things did lead towards apostasy in the end. Um, <laughs> philosophical. I know like in your own situation, wasn't it that the the girl you were dating, her father didn't like that you studied philosophy, right? Because he thought that that was a, an avenue towards, um, towards leaving Christianity eventually, right? Yep. I remember him literally saying, Austin, why don't you just walk in there with your Bible in your hand and just declare the word of the Lord? And I remember being like, you don't get it, dude. Like... <laughs> You don't do that in every single terrain of your or every single like context of your life. You don't walk into your daughter's kindergarten with your Bible in your hand, and you don't walk into the lunchroom with your Bible in your hand and just start beating people. With. You don't walk into every office or room that you go into into the bus queue, and you don't you don't do that. And my approach to the world was so different. I would try to explain that to him that I'm that I'm approaching the world through a different lens than the one that we have on Sunday mornings, and he just could not understand it because for him Sunday mornings should extend into everything, which I get from his perspective. But yeah, it was it was like an impossible conversation. We spoke two different languages. Yeah, in one sense he was right, in the sense of if your theology is entirely dependent upon defending yourself from any possibility of doubt or strife or dissent. If it's purely a defense mechanism against uncomfortability, then he was exactly right. All those things are just going to create more doubt and dissent in your mind and in others' minds and eventually be destructive. So if that's what theology is, then he's right about keeping yourself completely closed off in a bubble from those things and just 
sticking mm. entirely with you know the uh, the word of the group. Um, but then that's just a really sucky way to live. Like you never that, who wants to live that way? <laughs> you know, mm. Your version, which was more the Pauline version, right? Which is all things to all men, um, wanting to be versed in, in every possible language so that you could minister to everyone is a much more beautiful way of living, of course. Um, but then it does come with dangers. It comes with the danger of, you know, you end up with all of this sort of debilitating and paralyzing doubt. And it can lead you down different paths that alienate people who you care about, sincerely care about, but who can no longer associate with you because of specific, you know, ideological trappings. And You know, the, the great irony in all of this is that his rigidity and his defensiveness came across to me as a profound fear. And it was one of the links in the chain that turned my skepticism towards American Protestant evangelicalism in particular um, so stridently because I was like, what are you so afraid of, dude? If you really believe that you are saved and if you really believe that your God has indwelled you with the power of the Holy Spirit, then what are you so afraid of? He seemed so afraid. And it was that that really kind of had was one of the key personal moments in my life that really started to kind of like sound the alarm bells in my mind about this thing that was called the Christian faith, you know? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I was talking about anxiety and weakness earlier. It's fear. It's ultimately yeah. all about fear. And, you know, I think we both came from a disposition of, I want to know the truth. I really care about knowledge and I care about the truth and I care about what's good. And I'm going to follow that wherever it takes me. And I'm, I'm firmly believe it's going to be down this religious terrain. And so I'm going to keep exploring it for that reason. But other people reacted against that because they had probably seen people in their younger days who had the same dis disposition we had. And that led them down towards the apostasy route. And so they feared that same possibility. And it mm. comes down to fear ultimately. And you know what? It's no surprise then that all these people who have fear as their dominating disposition end up following the whole uh, political phenomenon that's happened in the past few years with evangelicals overwhelmingly supporting Trump, despite all the seeming aesthetic contradictions between evangelicalism and, and Trump's like moral lifestyle. It's because it's all based on fear. The political reaction against immigrants, demonizing immigrants, and the racist inclinations are all based on fear, entirely on fear of social change, on demographic change, on a world no longer bent towards white interests primarily. That's all based on fear, and so is the theological trappings. And so it's no surprise that even though there seem to be some superficial contradictions between them or superficial tensions between them, they're similarly based on fear, and the same people are going to fear both of those things. And so they're going to be married together for that reason. Hmm. So it's been a while since I read it, but Jürgen Habermas wrote a book in 73, 74 called Legitimation Crisis. And um, and I don't remember everything about his argument, but I remember some of these central ideas that he's articulating. And what he's looking at is he's looking, it's, um, it's a book of systems theory, and he's looking at how it is that systems that uh, we could say ideological systems, social systems, political systems, but that how systems function and how it is that they fall into crises. 
what is it? And um, he talks about how there is this, like, there's a directionality of the system that floats through a space among other systems, right? Like an interrelation of systems. But then simultaneously, there are like uh, networks that make up these systems. And so take a given system and let's think of like the Christian church, the American Christian church, for example. And uh, the American evangelical Protestant, well, we could qualify it to death. First Baptists or whatever. Um, but anyway, let's just take the American church, uh, the Christian church. And um, if you think of that as a system, that it has a sort of, um, the more that, and, and I kind of said this earlier, but I just kind of wanted to, to give kind of like some theoretical bite behind it, but the sort of, the more that you um, put up your guards and the more that you turn inwards and the more that you try to strengthen yourself, um, there's actually a, a, a tendency at which you can kind of like over-strengthen yourself and you kind of like make yourself more fragile. And uh, and I feel like that this this fear-based approach kind of does that. This fear-based approach really makes the community insular, right? Because you're constantly warding off anything else that might threaten your stability or your perceived stability based on your prefabricated notion of what like your healthy system is or what it looks like. And so you turn more inwards and you turn more inwards. And the more you do that, um, the potential actually for weakness increases, not strength in a way. And this is me kind of expanding on Habermas, but um, it's this idea that, that, that as you turn inwards, you kind of, um, you kind of turn your back maybe on the potential external world that's out there. But then simultaneously, you end up weakening yourself because of that turning your back against everything else. And so you're not, your metabolic system isn't taking in like good caloric intake from the outside because you're not taking anything in. You're, you're actually not taking, you're not breathing, so to speak. And so you end up kind of having a, a really weak immune system. And I think that's, the, I think I sensed that when like, in the example of this of this woman's father, I think I sensed that in him. And I think that's one of the reasons why fear to me was kind of something that I found distasteful, right? Like, because it's not bad. Like, if I meet someone that's afraid of a shark uh, and they're swimming or something like that, I'm like, oh, you disgust me. I don't want to be a part of your community anymore. <laughs> or if someone's afraid of death or if someone is afraid of economic collapse or if someone is afraid of climate change, you know? But there's a sense when it reaches like a, a fever pitch and it becomes hysteria, that that's when it becomes a turnoff to me and I become turned, that I be, that it becomes distasteful to me. And so I wonder, you know, I wonder what that is. I wonder why that is the case, you know? You know, I'm, I'm just thinking as you're saying these things that this is in a large part human nature as far as, you know, human nature can actually be identified. And that's, you know, you know, Ernst Becker wrote that book, Denial of Death, which was really popular back in like the 70s and 80s. And, um, the basic idea in that book and in the literature that follows it is that it's a genuine human impulse and it really follows the sort of conservative impulse in everybody that when you're faced with the contingency of life and with their, you know, um, peculiarity of infinitude of everything that happens to us, when those things are brought to your attention, you become more conservative. You become more prone towards hoarding what you have and not risk taking. 
And we know psychologically even that there's plenty of um, experiments and tests that have been done to show that you can prime people with, with death and that they'll become more politically conservative when it comes hmm. to all sorts of different issues, um, even people who aren't necessarily conservative in the first place. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's really a human impulse, I think, to, to fear things that everybody fears um, to different degrees, of course, but everyone fears things like death to, to some degree. And really let that be the driving force in how you live your life. Or you can let it be a momentary thing that um, you actually grapple with and you actually admit to yourself and try and deal with. And, you know, I, I don't think that necessarily just you know, psychoanalyzing this whole thing is, is super important. But I do think that it's, a, it's an impulse we all have. It's not peculiar to, to American Christians, right? It mm. just seems to have come out in this unique way, a peculiar way, because of the different um, political and sociological and even environmental um, trappings that exist right now uh, in America. But, yeah, I think that this is, a, this is not a surprising thing when, when you get down to it. And you actually look at what drives people's ideological change um, or even ideological stasis. And it does ultimately in some ways come back to a kind of simple like Freudian analysis about, hmm. you know, fearing death and uncertainty. Hmm. And, that's, and that's not to say that like those of us who are ex-evangelicals, whatever, are like heroic Sisyphus, like pushing up the boulder, <laughs> even though we know death isn't, you know, oncoming. It's not about like casting ourselves as like ideological heroes or anything. It's the, um, the Camus rebellion, right? That we have. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of, that's kind of dumb, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I think it's more just about being a little bit more honest with, with ourselves about um, admitting that those, those markers of fear exist. And, you know, we, we didn't like leave the church and then find the absolute truth afterwards. Right. That would have been like a cult mm. or something. It's more about, being open to the uncertainty and being willing to embrace it a little bit and maybe even enjoy it as much as you can. Um, yeah, it's not about finding some alternative absolute truth that, uh, that trumps our previous, our previous uh, ideological marker. Well, so going back to, to Josh Harris's statement that uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but that, you know, he's heard that there are other ways of being a Christian, but he doesn't understand what that is yet blah, 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 whatever. Um, this makes me think then of kind of like what you fall into when you fall out of the church or when you fall out of that community that has kind of given you life for however long you were a part of it. And it's so intense. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. It's not even duration in terms of time because I was only really a part of the church for, I mean, I was a part of the church because I, I, my dad converted when I was like nine. So he took me on the weekends, but then I stopped going when I was like 16. And then, uh, I started again when I was 21 until I graduated from that university that we went to. So I'm 27, you know, um, was when I, cause I started college when I was 23, I guess. Um, so 26, 27, something like that when I, when I left masters, but, um, it was more about the intensity there's like um there's like there's just this intense pathos that accompanies the involvement with the church you know and the question is 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 how do you find that in in the non church community do you think that it exists to the same degree of intensity or can it exist to the same degree of intensity 
in like the political sphere. Because I've experienced it in other communities. I've I've sensed it a little bit in political communities. And it's always really profound when I when I am attuned to it. But the weird thing is it still always feels lacking, if I'm completely honest. And I don't know if that's a failure in me to connect to the vision of the political community that I'm a part of or to the tradition. Or if it's a failure because there's there's kind of actually a shallowness to a lot of political communities because maybe it's it doesn't have the metaphysics, right? It doesn't have the transcendence. Uh, it doesn't have the thousands of years, millennia of tradition to ground it. It isn't a cosmological story. It's like, yeah, you know, we start from the, I don't know, the French Revolution. <laughs> and... Uh, and then we kind of go from there, you know. So you got 18th century, um, uh, you know. And some people will try to go back to like the peasants' revolt, and they'll try to ground it with Munzer and go back even further. And but it feels like that the political political communities are oftentimes seeking that arche, that ground, right? That that can really maybe heighten or deepen the pathos and the connection to the vision into the mission. And for some reason it's just been it's been less impactful on me than what the church offered me. And I think that's that's one reason why there is kind of I oftentimes feel a little bit like there's something missing. I I I still always want something more. But you know where I have found this I have found this connection in the theater and in a lot of the mm-hmm. art communities that I've been a part of. I have 100% found that. I have a 1000% found that. I've made those connections with people that I have created films with and done theater productions with. Like people, like I did a show, I did a regional show in Scotland uh, called Spring Awakening. I played the character of Melchior Gabor and the woman that played the lead opposite me, her character's name is Vendla, but her name is Kathy. She's an actor and I feel like I had a romance with her when I didn't. I didn't date the girl like well, our characters did. And, you know, we made out on stage and shit like that. And we have like this intense relationship. But we were playing this character for months and months. I mean, God, like eight months or whatever it was that we were doing this. And um, I feel like like when I think about her, like I feel like it's a love that I had in my life. And I have those. And that's just one example among dozens and dozens and dozens of other experiences that I've had with other communities. And that's just one character among the other cast uh, that was even in that just one show. And then however many dozens of shows have I done and how many films have I made and how many productions have I been a part of, you know, and I have those connections there. And maybe there's just something that I just haven't found yet. Or maybe there's like a a stopgap that is preventing me from finding it in certain political organizations. But I just wonder how we can find those connections elsewhere in those new kind of like ideological communities or those new social communities or whatever. That's really interesting, dude. You know, I, I completely share the, the sort of feeling of lack. Um, I know that I, I've never had that sort of communal intimacy since leaving the church. And, you know, just one example that for some reason sticks out in my mind is a lot of the uh, professors at our old college had really close relationships with students to the point where we would go over to their houses and just yeah. talk on and on about really kind of academic issues, and theological issues and philosophical issues. And they wanted to talk about it and they wanted to hear your thoughts and they cared 
it seemed like about yeah. your own intellectual and spiritual development and being in, you know, academics really for like my career ever since then, I've never found anything even close to that. And it's, mm. and sometimes it makes you despair a little bit and feel like, you know, all these people who have committed their lives to the academic, you know, life of the mind don't seem to give a shit about anybody else's or mm. really maybe even their own. Um, they're just sort of um, cynical about the whole thing. And that's understandable, I guess, given the state of academics and in, in the country and in the world. But it just, it seems like I still want, I still care about those same things. And I had that same disposition that I had when I was fully enveloped in um, the church version of like academic life. Right. And that's, that's really sad, I think. And sometimes I think maybe you just can't have that. Maybe it's a trade-off and to have that level of communal intimacy and responsibility and care means you also have to live under like a fascistic control society. <laughs> and that's, that's a really despairing thought, right? Like nothing could be worse than thinking that. And so I don't want that to be the case. Um, but sometimes I, I drift a little bit towards, towards despair and thinking that that kind of has to be the case. Um, just given the fact that the political scene has never had any of that for me. And part of that's my mm. own introversion and stuff. And um, I understand that, but uh, I'm glad to hear, and I had never thought about this, but yeah, the art community I guess can really be the because it's emphasis on creation and something bigger than yourself and contributing with others towards this bigger thing that really has no other end other than just creation itself. There's something about that that maybe mimics the the way that the um, level of church interest we're talking about um, was was effective. And you know, I don't. I, I obviously like you know, care about music a lot and play music and stuff, but I, I, I haven't been in that sort of community in the way you have with theater. So that does make me hopeful a bit that, you know, yeah, you can create those communities, but there have to be certain um, commitments amongst the people towards each other, towards mm -hmm. some greater abstract, maybe good. And that good really can't be a functional or instrumental good towards mm -hmm. something else. It really has to be, and end in itself, it seems like, uh, and that's mm. hard to that's hard to find. I think it's extremely hard to find. Yeah, it, it's interesting you bring up the academic thing because you're absolutely right about our our university, which it was almost like they were they were academic second and communal first. Yeah, right. It was about building a community more than anything, and then the academics kind of flowered from within that community, but it was bonds, human bonds were first and foremost. And I've, I've made some pretty strong connections with people in various grad, grad school experiences um, in England and in Scotland and even in Ireland a little bit. It hasn't quite been the same here in Australia. Um, you know, I mean, I've got some, some good buddies, um, and can have some amazing conversations, but it hasn't been quite the same. Like I had a community when I was in Scotland that was that was pretty freaking deep, man. You know, going to the pub, talking about anything, you know, just bullshitting to then talking about philosophy to just ending up at the casino till six in the fucking morning and just being a dumbass. You know, like one of my best friends, Scott, uh, I think he listens to the podcast. So what up, Scott? Like, I love Scott. Like, I love him like a brother. Absolutely. 100%. And it's one of those things that uh, that whenever we were together, there there is this deep connection um, in an academic setting that 
was, I think, is a very rare thing to find. Like, obviously, you and I have that, right? We just have to do it digitally now because of distance. <laughs> but, but I do think that, like, if our dream of kind of taking over a philosophy department were ever to happen, we could build that kind of community. I think we could do it. I really do think it's possible. We would you know? do a test case for sure because we would try like hell. <laughs> <laughs> we totally would, man. And and I think you do find pockets of it in certain academic circles. And I think you can find it in political circles. Like I have been in political settings where there's a commitment and a mission and people are involved. But my fear is, is that so much of non-transcendently based communities have some va vacuousness to them. I'm not saying it is the case. I'm saying that's just my fear. And and maybe that's just because I haven't been able to find that depth of connection in like a, a non-transcendent or a non-metaphysical organization. But yeah, that it, that is my fear. The fear is that the sort of death of God experience will translate into political and social communities as well. And that you kind of, in order to truly have those crazy deep bonds, that there has to be some semblance of a, an attachment to, you know, the beyond. Whether that beyond is avoid universalism in the Prozorov sense, or whether it's some sort of, um, you know, endless, creative, experimental, free flow of artistic expression that attaches to beauty or performance or the desire for empathy and connection or entertainment, some some synthesis of all of that. I don't know, but I, but I do fear that, um, yeah, I do fear that, that it, it, is, it is like forever to be lacking from my life post- post-Christianity, you know? Yeah, I have that same fear. And, you know, I think a lot of it comes back to, for all its faults, the Christian community we were a part of really celebrated and encouraged sort of caring about other people and even in some sense vulnerability. Um, now, it was obviously weaponized a lot against people to hold them back. There's all sorts of <laughs> yeah. bad stuff about that. But um, it at least celebrated, especially for men, I think is important, caring about one another. And deeply yeah. caring about the other person's spiritual states, how they're how they're doing beyond just the material trappings that they're involved in, or you know, their mm. physical health, or whatever, right? And outside of that community, it's just even in the most liberal and progressive spheres you can be in, there's some just block between men sharing that kind of deep relationship with one another. Mm. And I don't know if that's universal necessarily. Maybe it's just my experience, but there's such a an emphasis on on you know presenting yourself as a fully together dominant man, um, even amongst the most, you know, like misandrist communities you can think of. <laughs> mm. um, and so maybe that's just part of it, but I do think there's, there's a, there's a huge element of that, of just presenting yourself as, as together and strong and fully confident and able to take on the world in a way that, you know, the Christian community for all of its faults, at least admitted that no one really has that. Um, mm. And everyone needs the communal, uh, sort of uplift uh, to make it through. And I appreciate that. That's really interesting. You know what? Last thing I'll say, uh, Lacan talks about 
the, he has this famous uh, aphorism, I guess you could call it, where he says that there is no sexual relation. And um, one of the things that's interesting about that, did you listen to the, the Why Theory episode with Todd McGowan and Ryan Engley talking about this one? Uh, I think I have, yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear them, the way that they talked about it, that uh, that male sexuality is what Lacan describes as being kind of like, um, you know, act like a man is how Todd and Ryan described it in their podcast. Um, when you act like a man, you're meant to have everything held together. You're meant to be the sort of, you cover over all of the problems. You are the, the strong one. You have your shit together. You are the individual. You're like a singularity. Act like a man, you know, stand up straight, get your shit together, you know, don't be a pussy kind of thing, right? And male sexuality is kind of defined by that idea of uh, it's, there's the fear of castration, but you kind of always like suppress it or cover over it, right? Um, through some sort of like obsessive control or something like that. Whereas uh, female sexuality is what Lacan refers to as like the non-all. And the non-all is precisely that um, that kind of acceptance of uh, incompleteness or whatever. And there does seem to be something kind of interesting in what the, the church offers as a sort of like hybridization of these various positions of sexuation that different people can embody. And just so we're clear, Lacan isn't saying that men, like biological males are a particular way and biological females are a particular way. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the process of sexuation. We could call it like like encultured positions that you embody um, through the activity of being sexuated or whatever. And, uh, you know, so women um, or any gender can embody any position within the sexual differences that he identifies. But it's interesting because the church kind of uh, provides a place, at least in some ways, where you can have kind of like both expressions challenging and working through one another. And the question is, is can you have that maybe in a in a sense that, um, in a non-complementary sense, because that's the big issue for Lacan ultimately. He says there is no sexual relation because there is no ultimate complementarity between these two, like the you complete me, the yin and the yang kind of thing. So the question is, is can you have like, can you have expressions of different uh, sexuated positions in like a healthy, not a healthy balance, but whatever it might be, uh, uh, a healthy relation with one another. And does that mean that we just kind of like oscillate between the positions? Or does that mean that that uh, that we're kind of both and all at the same time? Like we're both kind of obsessive and uh, kind of trying to cover over uh, fears and inadequacies. And then at the same time, we also uh, need to reconcile with the sort of like unboundedness and uh, unrestrainedness of the non-all. I mean, I, I don't really know, but I wonder if you can have that within a within a community that would kind of better deal with those various expressions of sexuation, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I always found that, um, is it Seminar 20, where uh, he talks about uh, masculine, feminine sexu uh, sexuation? I think it is, is, yeah. The most interesting piece of Lacan out there. And I know that even, like, that was Zizek's whole, like, big thing with Lacan, is that being the ultimate metaphysical uh, distinction for Lacan. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I share that same sentiment, and I think um, trying to figure out how to recreate that sort of community without the, you know, control society aspects of it is the ultimate goal in community formation, right? And that's, 
I don't know how that looks. I don't know how it's possible. But that's that's the that's the goal, right? That's the ideal to uh, to aspire to. Yeah. However, that looks. If that just means everybody makes a podcast with everybody else, then we got to do that. <laughs> uh, this is our church. Let's do church. <laughs> Let's do church. Yeah, dude, you coined that. <laughs> Let's do the podcast. Oh God. Yeah, dude. Well, yeah. So uh, Joshua Harris, wherever you are out there, good on you, brother. Uh, it's very brave statement to issue and definitely heartfelt very well written very provocative and uh all the things we like here at owls at dawn yeah it struck me to the core that's for sure sick let's move on to the final segment of the podcast this is the segment that we call the sticky leaves it's where one of us gets to recommend something that is giving us joy or hope in a world that might be potentially meaningless so t-roy what's making you happy so listeners probably know given uh your various updates throughout the last couple of weeks that i uh, underwent a cross-country move um over the last few weeks which was uh uh, quite the harrowing ordeal. And I don't want to <laughs> talk too much about that because that's not necessarily the best podcast material. But I will say that in driving across the majority of the country, um, I listened to an audio book of the new Beastie Boys book. Are you familiar with this that came out last year? I am not. So I was a huge Beastie Boys fan in high school. They were sort of the uh, introduction to quote unquote good music for me. You know, moving from like new metal, like Limp Bizkit and Corn, and and uh, I had a time where I liked like you know, pop punk in the '90s and stuff. And the Beastie Boys were... don't say that with so much shame, motherfucker. Okay? No, I don't. I still love the pop punk. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, some of it, at least, not all of it. Not Blink One Eighty Two, but um, I still appreciate Offspring and Rancid and Green Day, the old Green Day, at least from the two yeah. days. Um, but uh, the Beastie Boys were sort of my introduction to something that's a bit alien, a bit weird, a bit different. There was lots of, you know, 70s funk and um, the, the whole sampling phenomenon, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, everyone, I think, at the time got to the Beastie Boys through License to Ill, which is very much like a frat house record from the 80s. And it's very mm-hmm. catchy and like immaculately mm-hmm. crafted um, pop songs in the sense of grabbing your attention and having just a ubiquitous amount of hooks. But then everything after that album that they did was artistically celebrated and critically acclaimed and, and really quality. Um, so that, so their later career after license deal, I think was, was very formative for me in high school and getting into a lot of like native tongues, hip hop movement. And I found Q-tip through the Beastie Boys and Tribe Called Quest uh, amongst other things. So I listened to this Beastie Boys book, which for those who don't know, um, one of the three members of the Beastie Boys passed away a few years ago, Adam Yauk. And after he passed away, they decided the two remaining members, Michael Diamond and Adam Horowitz, decided that they weren't going to continue with Beastie Boys. They couldn't do it without uh, Adam Yauk. And so they would do various things celebrating the history of the band, but they wouldn't ever make more music, uh, which I think is a good decision, uh, given that Adam Yauk was, I think, by far the main creative force in the group and certainly the most talented musician and rapper in fact he's the only one of them who actually could rap uh those two really suck terribly at the technical side of rapping um but uh they spent the last few years developing this ginormous book it's like i think like almost a thousand pages um detailing 
the entire history of the group. There's all sorts of like weird little um, append- appendices, I guess you call them. Like there's a, a series of like Beastie Boys related uh, recipes for a cookbook that are in here, including one that was like how to hmm. make a dozen eggs into an omelet. It's all eggs <laughs> and of different like cooked in different ways and different formations, uh, which sounds incredibly gross, but it's there. Um, and then all sorts of uh, great photos and, and different anecdotes and it's, I listened to this thing. It was, I think, like 16 or 17 hours in total. Um, mm. I listened to the whole thing on the, the drive out here, and it was like a magical experience. Um, I absolutely loved it. It's one of the greatest, um, I'd say, books I've ever listened to, but I haven't listened to many audiobooks, so I don't know if that changes <laughs> uh, my judgment here. But um, I wanted to just put out there that the Beastie Boys, I think, are sometimes unfortunately judged as being kind of like a like a shock rock kind of group given mm-hmm. how they came onto the scene in the 80s with License to Ill. And that's, I think, totally incorrect. Um, and then also sometimes sort of ignored as just, you know, white rappers who couldn't rap, which is true, technically. But I think they were extremely adept thinkers about music and um, creators of music who, I should add, played their own instruments throughout the entirety of, of their career um, and for much of their career when they weren't sampling were creating their own samples through um their through their instruments and so i think the book really does a great job of of focusing on the community between the three of them and how much they just loved each other and loved mm-hmm. making music with each other and all they wanted to do was just live with one another in a warehouse somewhere mm-hmm. in la or new york and play basketball and eat fast food and make music and do nothing else but that that was their dream life. That's all they wanted. And I, yeah. I sympathize so much with that. In fact, it even ties into what we've been talking about in this episode earlier about the idea of community and mm. caring for one another and wanting what's best for one another and helping each other and just kind of love between persons. And I think especially important that's love between, you know, three males. Um, mm. And that was not, not the kind of thing that's necessarily always celebrated uh, in culture. And so I love that the book focused on that. It was heartwarming it was hilarious some of the anecdotes they talk about the things that they did in the 80s early 90s before they were really like a mature adults and had families was is really funny and amusing um, and even some of their remarks on apologizing to various people that they fucked over i think was was really good they, they focused a lot on especially some of the early misogyny from their uh, 80s albums and how it's affected them how they think about it now and they even had some people on the audiobook who they had basically like uh, personally harmed or hurt with their lyrics or their actions, mm. um, which was kind of cool and had their perspective on it, what they thought about it at the time. I thought it was a pretty interesting way of, of reconciling, but like literally having their voice talk about these issues um, was very cool. So uh, anybody out there who's at all interested in the Beastie Boys, I would say uh, first get the albums, especially Paul's Boutique, which the 30th anniversary this year, actually, of Paul's Boutique coming out. It's full of 70s dirty funk. It's like the, the greatest sampling record maybe of all time in terms of just the breadth of samples it uses from all sorts of music from the 60s and 70s and, and on. Um, and Check Your Head, which is a great early 90s uh, rap and rock and instrumental funk record. Um, also check out this book. Even if you're not a huge Beastie Boys fan, I think you'll probably, as long as you're kind of generally familiar with them, enjoy uh, the stories that they tell in the book. 
So check all that shit out. See, I find this so interesting because I have, a, I think, a weird relationship with the Beastie Boys because for me, I never got into them. I know their hits. Um, I maybe listened to like an album or two all the way through a couple of times in my life. But for me, it was always the radio hits, right? That, like that Intergalactic I just, and stuff like that? Intergalactic, but I mean, even some of the older stuff, you know, Brass Monkey and shit like that. But but for me, it was always whatever that song's called. I don't even know if it's called Brass Monkey. It um, is, yeah. Okay. Um, but like for me, like I know them when they come on. They were on K-Rock because they kind of straddled that line between hip-hop and rock. They were one of the only quote-unquote hip-hop groups that you would always hear on K-Rock. Right. Um, So I I'm familiar with quite a bit of their song list, but I kind of never took them seriously as musicians, but I would always hear people who were seriously into music that would speak so highly of them. And I just never got it. Like, I just was kind of like, well, I like maybe that ship has just sailed on my ability to understand their place in music history kind of thing. So that's why this book sounds kind of interesting to me, because maybe it can like kind of like give me that insight that I just didn't develop on my own. Yeah, I think it definitely will do that. And if you're familiar with the Beastie Boys only from their hits, I think you have to realize that half of their hits came from their first album, which is which absolutely was a, like shock rock uh, or cock rock kind of uh, genre. And it was developed almost entirely by Rick Rubin and Def Jam uh, when, the, when the boys were like 19. So they certainly were not mature enough to have their own artistic vision. They were just basically partying. Um, and that, that experience was so negative for them that they left Def Jam, moved to LA and spent three years with the Dust Brothers building Paul's Boutique up from the ground up full of samples of the most obscure records they could find in LA and, uh, absolutely critically failed or commercially failed, excuse me, while being critically acclaimed because it, mm. Paul's Boutique, their second album was not at all like Let's and Steel. It couldn't be more different. So I would say... Even before reading the book, if you're out there and you want to sort of check out the Beastie Boys outside of just their hits, check out Paul's Boutique and kind of follow some of the sampling on the record, um, which I think is just ingenious. And then also listen to Check Your Head, uh, which has more of the mature uh, instrumental funk, rock, punk, and hip hop stylings that I think they're most well known for in the critical sphere in terms of just genre hopping every single song. Um those two records, I think, are, are all-time classics for me. And uh, I think anybody who wants to kind of d- delve into their discography should start there. What album is Sabotage on? Ill Communication, which is the one that came out after Check Your Head. Okay. Okay. Which is also yeah. a great record. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, because that song always kind of confused me. I was like, oh, that's not a hip-hop song. He's kind of just like <laughs> screaming, and it's kind of got like this weird rock kind of punky vibe to it you know yeah their whole 90s output um it's as much rock and punk and instrumental funk as it is hip-hop interesting place yeah see that's what i mean i only know i literally know the hits if it was a song that was on the charts then i probably have heard it but i haven't like i said maybe i've listened to an album at some point through a couple of times or a couple albums through like maybe in the background or maybe even just i was like i need to listen to this just because i need to get it and but for some reason they're just one of those groups that i i feel i don't know that they have passed me by like two ships in the night (laughs) i was going one way 
you've got a fun time ahead of you then hopefully i guess so man what's the book called again beastie boys book oh all right i should forget that one yeah (laughs) i won't i won't forget that one (laughs) and it's pretty great too i should add that the um the people that got to read the audiobook it's pretty fun there's like uh kim gordon from sonic youth um uh, john stewart uh john c Riley, um trevor noah there's just lots of really uh kind of funny and interesting people doing the audiobook um also who's the who's the famous chef uh, he's like an asian chef he used to have a, like a food truck and he became famous i forget his name do you know what i'm talking about i do and i can't remember his name right now but anyway he actually reads the the recipe cookbook portion which is really funny oh cool god what so, is yeah. his name yeah 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 i know who you're talking about yep well cool man i'll uh I'll have to add it to the list because that actually does sound like something that would be a good audiobook for me. It's an investment, I gotta say. Uh, it's definitely oh. the kind of thing that is good for moving cross country because you oh. kind of listen to the whole thing in about four days. But, oh yeah, uh, I do I love that. Yeah, it's it's definitely I think best digested in that really short time span. But I imagine it would be fun too to listen to over over many weeks. But uh, it is an investment. It's very long. Okay. Okay. Well, cool, man. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode then, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Well, thank you all for tuning in once again. Welcome back, Troy. It's nice to have you here again. Thanks. It's good to be back, man. I yeah. missed you. Oh, man, we missed you too. Um, Guys, if you would like to follow us on any of our social medias, you can find us on Twitter at owls underscore at underscore dawn. Same handle at Insta. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. And as we have said, our 100th episode will be the next episode. This is number 99. So the 100th episode is next, where we will be just addressing all kinds of questions that we have been getting. We've been getting some good ones. We've got a bunch of them. But fuck it, you got a week. So feel free to launch out some more questions to us. And um, hopefully they arrive in time so that we can get to them because we're going to try to get through every single question that we've received. And so uh, feel free to send them our way and we will address them next episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about that. It's going to be a fun episode. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap things up there, man. Is there anything else we got to do? Just one more thing I can think of, dude. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I know you wouldn't you wouldn't do this in the previous episode. I couldn't. It's (laughs) no, that's just that's just not it's your thing. (laughs) What do we got to do, man? Daspadani, American.